0: Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 224. This week, we talk with Ed Charbonneau about what it's really like to use Blazor, learning how CPUs work by writing one in code, finally, a good way to support your favorite open source projects, and writing a chat system with only CSS and no JavaScript, you monster. Listen up, everyone. Raygun is giving away a Raspberry Pi prize pack to celebrate the launch of their .NET Core support for APM, Raygun is giving away a free Raspberry Pi prize pack to a lucky MS Dev Show listener. All you need to do is go to raygun.com/dev-show, and Raygun will let the winner know via email. This week we have Ed Charbonneau. He's a Microsoft MVP and an international speaker, writer, online influencer, a developer advocate for progress. And an expert on all things web development, Ed enjoys geeking out to cool new tech, brainstorming around future technology, and admiring great design. How's it going, Ed? It's going great. Thanks for
1: having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, Carl, what do we have for the comment of the week? Uh, this comment we got from Dave Follett. He said, great episode. I want the WSL2 and Windows terminal even more. I might have to bite the bullet and join the Windows Insider program. By the way, the best Linux dev experience is on Linux. But as a user is forced to move to Windows, but still has to do Linux dev, Windows is greatly improving the experience. I do think that Windows is the best OS to be, uh, to do dev for all platforms. And I think we both agree.
0: Yeah, we're obviously we're a
1: little biased,
0: but I mean, there's just, there's still things that are just missing on Linux or you have to, you know, there's just that process of like going out and finding, you know, alternative applications, which is fine. Like I really admire the people that can do that. And I know we were trying to line up an episode where we're going to talk about some of that. But um, yeah, I mean, if you can be on Windows and WSL2 now is basically, it is basically Linux on Windows. So getting it is Linux. Yeah, it is Linux. So I mean, it's the best of both worlds in in my opinion. So I think it's great.
2: It's funny how one little app will put screws and things for you. I've tried a couple times to get a small machine going with like Mint and Ubuntu and some other variations of Linux, and there's always that one app I keep coming back for on Windows, whether it's Visual Studio or something like that, and just breaks the whole experience for me. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, so if you want to get mentioned on the show like Dave, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, comment on our website or Twitter. We especially love those five-star iTunes reviews.
0: Absolutely. Okay, let's jump into the news. We have a lot of really cool stories here. So the first one, your ARM templates are about to get a lot more colorful. We just shipped an update to the ARM tools extension for VS Code with syntax highlighting.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, ARM templates are really core to deploying uh, things into uh, Azure and repeat repeatable fashion and they're just super handy for your To integrate with your CI, CD process, but they're kind of a pain to generate and maintain, especially if you have something that's a fairly complex architecture where you might want to inject like a tons of different uh, uh, variables or parameters into uh, them. So the fact that you can add this extension now and get some syntax highlighting to just help you out with that, Um, you know, in the past, ARM templates are a little unforgiving if you have errors and this can really help you see where those errors might be.
0: Absolutely, and I guess I can shamelessly plug the ARM Template Visualizer now. It's really terrible, so I'm just going to warn everybody in advance. But if you search for ARM Viz out in the Visual Studio um, Code extension store, uh, you'll see something called the ARM Template Visualizer, and it gives you and like that's
1: an ARM V I Z, correct?
0: Yeah. So you can either I think if you search for ARM Visit Works or if you search for ARM Template Visualizer, that should show up as well. Uh, but that gives you like a Vizio like. Uh, chart of your resources in the template and it is it's really terrible right now. I'm just gonna warn you it's been installed six hundred and thirty five times, so I'm sorry to six hundred and thirty three of them because uh two of them are, <laughs> two of them are me uh but um. Yeah, so, I mean, people can go check that out, but it is super rough around the edges. It's really tricky, like, connecting two different windows like that and have it do the visualization. So it's terrible, but if people are just dying to visualize their templates inside of VS Code, um, me and uh, Shenglong Long uh, did build that extension now for, for VS Code. Uh, okay, next one is Redis Edge on Azure. I'm sorry. Yeah, Redis Edge on
1: Azure IoT Edge. Yeah, so... A lot of people are familiar with Redis in general and how you would use that as a caching layer in your web application. Well, there is now an IoT Edge module that gives you that same SDK, that same footprint that you're used to working with, but now on IoT Edge. So if you want to cache some information and have that be locally, you now have that exact same Redis product to work with in your IoT projects as well. So, uh, that's really cool. And this is actually another video podcast, um, put on by Microsoft.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask you like, how is this different than just using Redis in a container on the edge? But it looks like, it looks like it taps into the, uh, the message bus.
1: Yep. So it it is the, that same product, uh, that has been containerized, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's been integrated with the edge SDK a little bit behind the scenes. So it's a little bit more seamless.
0: Okay. Well, that's super cool. I like that.
1: Uh, GitHub sponsors, a new way to contribute to open source. Yeah, this one I'm a little bit less familiar with uh, because it, I just read the announcement briefly. But uh, GitHub now has a way for you to uh, donate uh, to uh, projects that uh, are accepting donations. Um, and not only that, but during the, the first uh, uh, period of time, GitHub is actually going to match Donations as well, and I believe from what I uh, what I uh, can remember as well that um, it's the project is actually going to get all of the money that you donate to. There's not like a processing fee that's right. going to take away like five or ten percent or whatever it is. That's so there's awesome. zero fees as part of this as well. well.
0: That's great. Yeah, they cover everything. That's really that's really great.
2: Yeah, I think yeah. this is an excellent idea. It's it's probably topic for an entire show, but. Uh, you know, we're, we're software developers and we're in this odd industry that we expect people to pay us to write software, but then <laughs> on the same regard, we don't expect to pay for software. Yep. So I think this is a great way for developers to earn money working on their passion projects and pick up like corporate sponsorships and things to actually make money working on the projects they enjoy working on and and move those projects forward and get more people involved and stuff like that. Yeah, that is that is super cool.
1: Yeah, I I think, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, this is great for a certain class of open source projects, but not all open source projects need money. So, you know, it's really, you know, finding what, what is the right kind of project that money helps and then being able to support them in that way and finding out how to support the other ones in the ways that, you know, are useful for that project and that community behind the project. That's actually a good
0: point. Cause like I, I threw a whole bunch of stuff out there and if people started sending me money, um, it wouldn't help. It probably wouldn't help the project unless it was a lot of money because <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm probably still going to ignore all those projects. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you have a project that, you know, especially when, cause it, it looks like you, you put a file out there, a funding.yaml uh, file and, um, you know, so that this is something they turn on. So presumably, if they're asking for money, that means that they have a way of using that money to accelerate the the project, or or maybe make it independent. So that's great. Um, because yeah, I think just randomly throwing money at at any at a some random repository doesn't make sense. But this is, uh, I like this how you have to turn it on first. Uh the next one here. I don't know how CPUs work, so I simulated one in code. This sounds like something that I would do. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this is really great. If you read through this whole thing, it's actually pretty detailed, uh, but they were going on, you know, like, you know, like I didn't really know what goes on. So I did enough research and to help make it sync, you know, I started implementing this in code to make it work. So, uh, they definitely took a bunch of shortcuts to make a few things easier. They're not going to, um, go out and be able to be like a, an X86 compatible, you know, sync, um, to this but uh i I know they said that they only like implemented four registers and stuff like that so they took a few shortcuts to make things a little bit easier but they still got um you know did virtual gates uh made their registers ram their cpu the alu got io working between all of that and and that alone that's a lot of work so this is really cool to see how you know somebody who was new to some of these concepts and uh, you know Maybe knew the high level stuff, you know, kind of married that knowledge together into just like a little proof of concept that is fully functional. They showed some of the programs that they wrote and a little animated GIFs throughout the way, just proving out that their uh, CPU and virtual computer worked. Yeah, I wonder how many instructions
0: per instruction they're actually running.
2: (laughs) It's probably a big multiplier factor. Reminds me of some bizarre um, Minecraft maps that I've seen where people have used all the Minecraft widgets to emulate CPUs.
0: Yeah, exactly. Those actually get really crazy. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I... This might be uh, a controversial topic, but I actually think this this kind of thing is is extremely valuable Uh, when I was in school, you know, people today. And the reason I think it's controversial is I think people are um, questioning the, the value of higher education for computer science. Maybe they're not questioning it, but they're saying, you know, hey, you don't you don't need this four year degree. And I actually agree with that. But I've also heard of people saying that, you know, like those four year degrees are completely pointless. When I was in college, um we had to and, and I hope they're still doing this. We literally had to design like circuits with NAND gates. We had to understand all the different types of gates and we and, and and this was still like, you know, like Python existed. Um, you know, .net was uh was was right around the corner. Um, you know, this wasn't back, you know, in like the 60s or anything when when I was in college. Um, so I but I thought it was extremely valuable just understanding how ultimately that code gets translated. We did learn some C code. You know, so we learned like you know, here here's how the actual processor works. Here's how you design it. And then we learned, you know, uh, C and then C++ and then managed languages. And I understand how that stack works. And I understand how the things that I write today sort of translate down and things like big, big O notation. So, you know, hopefully people don't see this as like a massive waste of time. Maybe this wasn't the most efficient way to learn about it, but you know, it obviously worked good for this person. Um, so I I definitely don't want to like laugh at this and, and like discredit. It. I think it's I think this is a totally valid exercise and I I think that they're much smarter for for having done it. I think they probably have a level of understanding that a lot of people just don't have. No comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> um and then the next story here, CSS only chat, a truly monstrous async web chat using no JavaScript whatsoever on the front end. So this is like the opposite of what we were just talking about.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is about as opposite as you can get. You know you know, I think this is really amazing. I, I've, to be honest, I've really stopped using CSS, you know, as part of my, you know, daily job uh, for several years now. So it, it's amazing to see the latest and greatest of what CSS can do and, you know, being able to, you know, implement a fully functional chat client only in CSS. That's pretty crazy. Um, it does it using a few tricks. A few of them is using uh, uh hover and active. Um, Uh, pseudo selectors. Yeah, which is legit. And then, yeah, it's legit. And the the thing that, uh, is, gets kind of crazy is if you have to set up the page to do some sort of fancy transfer encoding, uh, to accept chunked in the HTTP header. And once you do that, then you can, uh, that sets up the communication method.
0: Yeah, that that was the question I had. How are they actually doing the server communication? But what they're doing is they're essentially making CSS request a background image. And that, that's how it, that's how it triggers it. And then you just have a background image for every single
1: letter. Yep. So the, you know, the A image, you know, or the A button that you're clicking is an image. So it, it's able to make that response. That is hilarious. And then. Yeah, it's interesting, a nice hack. Um, but the interesting thing is this was based upon somebody noticing that you can, um, with the same technique, you can actually track somebody's mouse cursor using uh, granulated images in the background um, <laughs> and and detect where they're hovering oh over,
0: which image they're
1: hovering over, and you have being a grid. able to send
0: that back. Oh my God, that's really... Yeah,
2: this isn't ripe for exploit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I know, this is like the next round. It's funny because like, Um, I've always, and I think a lot of developers do this, right? Like as you're, as you're building something, you're just like, Hey, couldn't somebody exploit this? And, and it's just, it's always been, every time I've made that mental note, it's always been a matter of time before it's, it's turned into
1: something like this. I I think the answer is always yes. Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) We Uh, need a black mirror episode that deals with CSS. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know how, but
0: (laughs) yeah, they'll figure out a way they'll figure out a way. Um, speaking of which, did you guys do that, uh, interactive one? Uh, what was that called?
1: Bandersnatch.
0: Yeah. Bandersnatch. I just did that the other day. I thought that was really interesting. The whole thing was. I mean, it was like super, it got super meta. It
1: was in depth. (laughs) It was very in depth. The amount of choices and routes you could take. I I believe, you know, I'd have to go back because I remember somebody did a mathematical analysis on the choose your own adventure books and on on how complex they were. Yeah. And just seeing the graph for this one, it looked way more complex than, you know, what the original choose your own adventures were.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, it was like, and they kept it like going. You didn't have to like exit and go back. You didn't have to manipulate it all. Like it allowed you to sort of flow through different paths. And then i I was just really freaked out when it got super meta. I don't know if you saw if you if you did it long enough, but you get to this point where you you watch them, they're like creating the Netflix show. They're creating Bandersnatch, and it was based on the thing from from the show. <laughs> this is now now (laughs) yeah it was yeah exactly it was like that and i'm just like but you're just sitting there like wait a second didn't you just create like a circular reference like like i'm a little freaked out right now but anyway that's not (laughs) this isn't the bandersnatch episode but i i thought that was super clever what was yes yeah yeah, exactly exactly yeah and he just kept like looking back we need that on the ms dev show anyway for the last story here (laughs) uh the New Hampshire department of transportation has installed a historical marker to mark the invention of a computer language.
1: Yeah. How many times have you gone down the highway and see like those historical markers and just kind of be like, man, that's probably going to be something boring because it happened, you know, 200 years ago. And it's just about like how this cliff got its name after somebody that (laughs) you wouldn't even know if they told you.
0: Yeah. Um, Clayton ravine,
1: but, but to be geeky, uh, in New Hampshire, uh, there's a historical marker uh, for the invention of the basic language. Um, it was invented in 1964 at Dartmouth College, and there's a whole sign on the side of a highway that you can read up about uh, the first user-friendly computer programming language. That's super cool. I love I it. We need here, more of this.
2: It seems like a very typical American thing that we're, we're doing, uh, and making that this is a newsworthy thing to talk about. Not not you guys, but I mean the fact that there's an article on this. Like all over Europe, there's all kinds of monuments that celebrate, you know, historical mathematics and figures. What is this Europe that you speak of? And, <laughs> I've never heard of it. Like in the U.S., we have these historical markers. It's like this building is a hundred years old. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That old and fancy. <laughs> like our, our our history just doesn't go back far enough.
0: No, right? I know. I know. No, you're absolutely true. I, this is, uh, yeah, I mean, this is just something new for the U S obviously I, I'd be interested in some of the, the ones, uh, um, outside of the U S then that relate to computers. Cause I know some of the, I know some of the stuff around, um, what was that computer called? Um, the Alan Turing made, um, for the, the Enigma machine or whatever, um, yeah. uh, that, that stuff, I think there's a whole museum for that. And I would love to see all of that. That's gotta be really yeah. cool.
2: There's a great show on Netflix. I, I think it's called the history of math or something like that. Uh, there's, there's a guy that does a whole series of them and, um, he's got three Netflix specials and they, he goes and travels throughout Europe and finds all these monuments. It's really oh, that's interesting cool. stuff.
0: I'll just watch that then. That sounds a lot easier. <laughs> 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 cool. Well, thank you for letting me know about that. I'll have to check that out. Mm -hmm. okay so let's move on and let's talk about blazer um and i searched for i think you just search for your name and you appear to be swimming in (laughs) blazer like (laughs) everything you do seems to be related to blazer so what got you started and in interested in blazer
2: so i've been a, a web developer for probably like 15 16 plus years now And I've seen many frameworks come and go. And um, I've always been a .NET guy. Uh, I've done uh, VB6 all the way up through modern .NET core stuff. And, uh, you know, .NET developers have always wanted to write C Sharp and just let it run on the web. And about... A year and a half ago, it's getting to be about that long now, I was at the MVP Summit out in Redmond, and uh, this brilliant engineer by the name of Steve Sanderson had a session on running C-sharp code in the browser, and uh, that's where I first learned about Blazor. And um, I work at Progress, the company that makes the Telerik UI brand of uh, developer tools, A lot of .NET developers are familiar with our stuff. And uh, I work for the company as a developer advocate, and I saw this new framework emerging, and I was like, this is something I've always wanted. I know there's going to be tons of other people out there that want this as well. Mm -hmm. So I immediately jumped on board and uh, brought the information back to work and said, you know, we need to start building some UI components for this because if it takes off, uh, it's really going to be hot. And uh, I've spent every day pretty much since focused on blazer and and the community and and building tools around it
0: yeah and dot net i mean is so i mean that there, there's so many dot diehards right because so many people have such a huge investment in it i mean i started doing it back in the year 2000 like when it was in beta right so like that's dot net is just ingrained in my brain and um it is always it is still to this day even though i do a lot of typescript and javascript um it's still like the language that I understand the most. So this is to me is like super exciting, be able to being able to use.net on both places. Cause that was when I first heard, you know, people wanting to use JavaScript on the server side, I'm like, what are you nuts? <laughs> um, and then I sort then I saw like, Oh, that's really cool. Whenever you can use the same language on both, what a concept, you know? So this is sort of the, the, the other way of doing that. And we had to wait quite a while, but it seems like the right stuff is in is in place now. But um, I'm actually I keep getting more and more excited about this as time goes on because it's just it seems like it seems legit.
2: <laughs> yeah, using one language on the front end and back end seems to be something we've chased since day one of the web. I think uh, Java JavaScript itself was initially pitched as a uh, Java was going to run on the server and on the client, but mm-hmm. JavaScript kind of got its made its mark in there before that could take over. So yeah. here we are <laughs> how many years later still fighting that same fight. Yeah. Uh, and,
0: but, and I even remember like using .NET to write JavaScript, you know, like that's how, that's how much I didn't want to write JavaScript at the time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the fact that there's an F sharp to uh, uh, JavaScript compiler or transpiler, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Fable, I think is what it's called. The fact that that exists, um, it shows you how strongly people want <laughs> to run .NET on the web. Exactly. So
1: Blazor right now is up to, I believe, Preview 6. What's new now compared to maybe when it first came out and we t- started talking about it?
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's moving along quite quickly. Um, a couple releases back, and I, I listen to your guys' show pretty f- frequently as well. So I know you've had uh, Dan Roth and some of the other...
0: Yeah, and Steve Zanderson. Uh, it was back, back in March. On. Yeah.
2: Um, So your listeners are probably pretty familiar with Blazor itself. So it's nice to hit uh, some of these newer uh, topics on what's latest and greatest. And Preview 6, I don't know when you guys are airing this, but at the time of recording, Preview 6 just shipped less than a week ago. Uh, So we've got lots of new features. Um, Some of the biggest ones are uh, very important to people that are using Blazor. It's one of uh, the most... Uh, talked about items I've heard uh, being in the community this long is authentication and authorization in Blazor apps. And when people talk about authentication in the scope of ASP.NET, what they really mean is they, they want the identity framework from .NET to, to work with Blazor applications. Uh, because uh, authentication you can do on the client side, you know, without a big framework and all that. But what people really want is that, that identity system that's built into ASP net. And that finally came uh, with preview six. So we have, you know, the the capability of logging in and persisting that user's data back on a, a SQL database, for example, or in the, in the Azure somewhere. Um, so we've, we've got integration now with Blazor, and in that, means that there's a lot of uh, views that the ASP.NET team had to create. And you think about managing user profiles and all that uh, those things are now in there. So if you need to uh, create a user account and change your password and all that functionality um, that stuff comes out of the box. So that's, that's really a big uh, feature to be released in, in preview six. Um, there's some, Code changes as well. Uh there's some breaking changes that people might encounter with preview six. If you're familiar with Razor, you'll you'll remember the functions block. Uh that's now the code block uh in Razor Components. So uh, the component model, um the functions is for dot Cshtml, uh razor views and pages. And if you're writing Razer components, it's it's at code now is the, uh, directive for that. So that's, if you've got existing blazer applications out there, they're going to have to be migrated to get, uh, up to speed with the, the new markup. Um, they're, uh, they've taken out, um, uh, or they, they're, they're Getting settled around the um, JSON serialization that's going to be in ASP.NET Core 3.0. So Blazor's now on that. It's It has no more dependency on JSON.NET. So that's a big one. I think there's going to be a little bit of growing pains there. Um, a lot of people have used JSON.NET for a long time and used to it just working And this new serialization framework. Uh, I've heard there's been... Um, some bugs here and there. I was going to ask, is it new stuff?
0: <laughs> cause I've seen, I mean, cause we, I've seen, you know, net serialization libraries before built into the, the framework and they just, they weren't as good.
2: Yeah. I I don't believe it's as robust as um, Jason.net is. And mm-hmm. I don't think it will ever be that large. Uh, yeah. I don't work on that team or anything. I'm just, you know, thinking of other things, that microsoft has done with the aspnet framework we have dependency injection but there's still autofac and all those great tools out there that do more than what's baked into the framework so we still have the ability to swap that thing out uh but they've they wanted to take that dependency a third-party dependency out of the stack uh, and make it optional so that that happened with Blazor in this release okay so um
0: yeah so w- when i'm when i'm and when i'm actually writing Blazor. Like, what is my Mm -hmm. output? Um, Because, you know, I've heard like I've heard that it uses WebAssembly. Like what what actually happens there? So is it does it get compiled into WebAssembly and then then I get like a file? What does that whole process look like?
2: Yeah, that's actually a really great point to bring up and kind of clarify with everybody what exactly Blazor does. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, when you're running Blazor on the client side, so. We'll step back for just a second, and, and we can we can circle back on, on the loose ends later. But Blazor is a framework that runs .NET code. Uh, the UI actually can be run on the server or on the client. Um, it's actually pretty open-ended, so you could act, you could have it run in different contexts. So we're, we're mainly focused on the client-side version of Blazor right now, talking about WebAssembly and how it runs there. Uh, so Blazor being a, a .NET frame or a, dot, a framework built on the .NET framework, um, it can run in these different contexts. Uh, we need a .NET runtime to execute Blazor. So what they've actually done is taken the .NET runtime, the Mono runtime, and compiled that to WebAssembly. So we're not compiling our .NET code directly to WebAssembly. Uh, they've compiled the runtime to WebAssembly, and then we can just use existing net code in our uh runtime that's on WebAssembly, so they're using mono for that and if you're not familiar with mono that's the same um runtime that runs unity and xamarin so it's a pretty safe space to execute your code in
0: so does that mean my net code is now interpreted uh, sorry if that's a really stupid question <laughs> like is my um, code you know because like javascript goes over as text and then the text gets um you know, gets executed or, you know, I guess, I, I guess it gets compiled in some modern ones, but like, is the, is the text then going over the wire of my .NET code? Is the
2: text. Go- then yeah. still transferred as a binary file. Okay. So your, dot, your DLLs go over the wire. Oh, okay. um, yeah. And then your .NET runtime executes the code. Now, whether it's in doing some interpretation, um, that's, that depends on yeah. the type of code it is and whatnot. Okay. But-
0: in hindsight, that was a stupid question. So it makes sense that the DLLs are going over. I got it now.
2: Yeah, we're not shipping source code over the wire. Uh, however, we are shipping DLLs, and just like with .js files, if you ship a .dll file over the wire, you are shipping code yep. uh, that can be decompiled, yep. and you can look at source code. Uh, that's a question I get quite often, and I, I'm not sure what the concern is because we do this with JavaScript all the time. Your, your yeah, source code
0: I, I think, that, literally I think the concern, shipped. if I had to guess, my concern would be... Let's say, um, let's say I have some kind of critical, uh, like piece of code that does some kind of processing, I don't know, audio processing or whatever. Like it does some, it, it's some code that does something interesting. And I used to have that on the server and, you know, I had no concern over that maybe proprietary, um, process for, for doing something, uh, you know, I just have no concern about that being taken. And now I'm taking this code that, that always had the safety net of being somewhere else. And now I'm moving it out to the client. I mean, I, I think it's going to be rare. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this is common at all, but now I'm, I'm my, this, this promise of being able to take existing code and move it over to the client means that I now I have to, like, make sure that everybody understands, like, hey, moving it from, like, zone A to zone B from, you know, server to client means that now people can get our our code. And if we have some kind of proprietary algorithm for something, now they can see it, potentially.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it just boils down to basic security knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, these, you know, proprietary pieces of code that you have running on the server, they can still do that they can still run on the server as web service endpoints or they you can actually run all of blazer in the server and not ship any code across the wire um but if you treat it the same way as you would have if it was a javascript front end you're not going to run into any new security issues right um now if you had that same dll and you shipped it over in a xamarin app you would still have the ability for somebody to go into your device right. and pull that DLL file out and decompile it. So this isn't a new problem. Um, I think it's just new territory it's stepped into. Uh, so people that are newer to to that happening, uh, you know, maybe you're doing, uh, you know, like you said, you have things on the server running. You're calling web APIs to it. And you got to be careful what you pick and choose to send as a DLL and what you keep as a service.
0: Mm-hmm. Makes
1: sense. Uh, so, and uh, keep going.
2: Yeah, I was going to say uh, one, one last point on that um, compiling stuff to WebAssembly. There is some talk about future releases to have a tool that will take uh, code that may have long-running processes, uh, so things that need speed, and um, they would run more efficiently in uh, WebAssembly rather than shipping them to the .NET framework and having them interpreted through the .NET framework. So... Uh, there, there may be tooling in the future to compile some C sharp code directly to WebAssembly and have Blazor execute it client side.
1: So Blazor has Razor components. How, how does that fit conceptually in uh, in ASP In the past, there's been HTML helpers. There's been tag helpers. Uh, there's also a newer just uh, web component concept. So. Does that map to any one of those? You know, like how can we take our previous experience and kind of map it to what's going on in this new world?
2: All right, so there there's a lot of differences between what we've done in the past and what Blazer is now. So we should probably talk about those. Uh, I'll try to talk about them on the surface a little bit, and I'll deep dive just a little on each one. Um, actually I actually have a. A session that I give at conferences about this. And, uh, I think it, it opens the eyes for a lot of folks, uh, cause they either d- are, haven't concerned themselves with how these things actually, uh, render the components out to the UI or, uh, you know, things have just been abstracted away where we don't have to worry about it. So if we think about ASP net MVC. So if we got, uh, MVC views, uh, we have, uh, razor, a, uh, .cshtml files that make up the views, and we also have the concept of an HTML helper. So, uh, a Razor view is that .cshtml file. It is ran through the Razor um, templating engine, and it basically spits out a string. Now, I don't want to oversimplify it, but it is an oversimplification of it. But at the end of the day, um, that template gets turned into a string. Now with an HTML helper, there's a property on our view that we extend and we use that to inject more strings into that pipeline. So if when we say at HTML and we ask it to render an input, it simply injects a string into that input. Now there's a lot of complex things that happen to make that string come out, but at the end of the day, The Razor view loads that HTML helper and outputs a string. The whole thing ends up being one big string. Um, Same thing with pages. Uh, Razor pages end up the same way as well. There's just a little more mechanics to it um, because we have the concept of routing and uh, controllers and actions and all that built in and code behind files and things like that. But at the end of the day, the view portion of it becomes a string. Uh, tag helpers as well. Tag helpers are similar to HTML helpers, but they have scope, so they can have nested child components, and they have the ability to mimic HTML where they have tags and attributes, so they feel like HTML when we write them. But again, those things get turned into strings. They're just string generation tools, all of these things. Blazor or Razor components in Blazor, however, do not immediately generate a string. Those things get code generated uh, into a special class that uh, overrides a property um, or, or a function or method that builds a render tree. So, the render tree is similar to a concept that React and Angular have, where there's a virtualized uh, DOM. So, there's a, repre- a, simple, uh, a simple representation of the DOM. So when your components are all interacting with each other, uh, you're not immediately just putting all those updates onto the DOM. The render tree gets updated, uh, and it finalizes that update and then does a diff between what your DOM has and what the render tree has, and that final update gets pushed and the changes get made. And that's to save um, processing of the DOM itself. Making changes to DOM is a very expensive process, So you don't want a bunch of components interacting with each other and randomly just changing things in the UI that may or may not actually need to be changed at the end of the day. Uh, So that's how they're extremely different concepts. So the HTML helpers and tag helpers are just string generation tools, and these Razor components actually create a uh, DOM uh, render tree. Uh, I don't know if I got a little too deep there, but <laughs> it's, it's an important distinction, uh, to know because a lot of people approach a blazer for the first time and they ask the question, uh, well, how do I just generate, you know, and render HTML out? Cause I, I just want to make this HTML thing. But then if you need to change that thing, uh, what we would normally fall back on is something like jQuery. Where you have to go find the element in the DOM and then rip it out or update it or delete it, right? Uh, in in Blazor you don't do that. You rely on the framework to make those changes for you. So you don't want to write raw HTML out because if you do, you circumvent this render tree and you lose all the DOM rendering performance gains.
0: Have you signed up yet for your chance to get a free Raspberry Pi prize pack? This is only for MS Dev Show listeners. To celebrate the launch of their .NET Core support for APM, Raygun is giving away a free Raspberry Pi prize pack to a lucky MS Dev Show listener. All you need to do is go to raygun.com slash dev dash show, and Raygun will let the winner know via email. Please go to raygun.com slash dev show to help support our amazing sponsor. I'm still trying to wrap my head around this because if I'm using JavaScript, then I get, I get all these tools that are going to help me. Um, so it could be angular for example, or, or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, what does that look like in blazer? Um, cause I know we have like, there's like MVC, there's razor pages. What, um, like, how do I, how do I get started on all that? What, what would you recommend doing? Cause I see like their sample and that looks really simple. And I see some of the tools that you, that you mentioned as far as helpers and things like that. Um, do I need to like, do I need to bring in
2: one of, do I need to bring in something else as well or not? Uh, that's one of the beauties of Blazor is it's very simple. So Blazor, the framework itself has almost everything that you need, uh, to build an application. It has the component model, it has routing, um, it has, uh, data binding and all these things. Uh, what you can add, uh, as a developer, um, in additional tooling or write things yourself is the approach that you take, uh, to manage the application? Do you want it to be an MVV style, MVVM style application? You can do that in Blazor. Um, You can follow some of the practices that uh, people follow in Silverlight and uh, use those programming models. Uh, So there's some familiarities there. It's also based on the concepts that we use in ASP.NET Core. So it has things that we're familiar with. Dependency injection is written the same way Um, It has a startup.cs, and it has a program.cs, and those things are very familiar and and written out the same way. Uh, So it's very easy to get on board. The learning curve is very short. Um, You you can learn the basic concepts of Blazor um, in a day, whereas something like Angular might take you a week.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's interesting that you – Brought up silverlight because there's a there 's a lot of people who really invested into silverlight and really saw that as you know having a lot of the benefits that blazer seems to have so what would you say to somebody who kind of comes from that history and background
2: so i've i've actually spoke with quite a few people uh, working for Telerik, um the Telerik brand of tools. Uh, We, we have a lot of customers that are still using Silverlight and they're looking for migration strategies and Blazor has been very attractive to those folks. Uh, So they're, they're using some of our Telerik UI components for Uh, Silverlight and, uh, we're, we're working on, uh, Telerik UI for Blazor. So there's lots of new components out. Um, and we're getting a lot of feedback from those folks and they're, they're pretty happy with the programming model. Um, and there's a lot of people that enjoy that MVVM style approach. Um, what's nice about, uh, Blazor is unlike Silverlight, there's no plugins. Uh, it works off of web standard technologies. So there's, a little bit of safety in that we don't have to worry about, uh, you know, a company like Apple saying no more plugins and uh, squashing this thing. Um, but there, there's a lot of similarity similarities in the programming models because it is .NET and uh, our .NET libraries work in Blazor. Existing things that were written before Blazor tend to work in Blazor, um, so it's a good migration path. I think the the biggest challenge for those folks might be going from. Uh, that XAML syntax to HTML. So it's a little bit different in that regard. Uh, but it's still .NET at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, I was just trying on my iPhone, too, some of the demos, and they, they work on there, too, which is pretty cool, because they implement the same web standards, <clears throat> which is really neat.
2: Yeah, when when we're building our components for uh, the Telerik UI components, um, what we're doing is we're, we're still using the same HTML and CSS that we have in our other component suites. So we, we have frameworks for Angular, React, Vue, jQuery, all those things. Um, a lot of them share some, uh, very simple DNA. Uh, they have, uh, for example, if we're going to render a, uh, a button, Kendo UI's buttons are going to be the same buttons that you see in the Telerik UI for Blazor, except the, uh, the interaction that you program against, the APIs you program against um, in Angular and in React, those things are written in JavaScript, and uh, we've rewritten everything in C Sharp. So all of our components heavily rely on the framework. They're all written as native components for the framework. Um, But the HTML and CSS is shared across many different types of uh, frameworks. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just web standard stuff.
0: It's really cool that you guys are on top of this, by the way, <laughs> and they have all this stuff Thank you. already. So, um, you know, the, 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 the Silverlight people, and I, I run into this all the time because everybody's like, you know, oh, you're not going to fool me again. So, <laughs> uh, so the, the, the question I have, and this might be kind of a silly question, but you know, people are mad that like new versions of Silverlight aren't coming out. They say that Microsoft killed Silverlight, which, I actually fundamentally disagree with because I actually think it's still supported if I'm not incorrect on that. Um, so we didn't kill it. (laughs)
2: Like I think Apple killed it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's my opinion.
0: Yeah. Steve jobs killed it when he waged war on flash. So, you know, like it was, it is what it, that's how history went down. But anyway, like, so, so these people that have this fear.
2: So my question is, could Microsoft kill blazer? Um, I suppose they could, if they really wanted to, i not sure why they would want to, Because I think, I think uh, like
0: is everything open source. I mean, like if, if Microsoft said like, we're just done, this blazer thing was really stupid. Could, could somebody else pick it up?
2: Um, I would love to say yes. Um, and I'll, I'll be realistic and transparent though. Uh, there is a lot of sharing going on between different teams yeah. to make this thing possible. So while the framework itself is open source, um, you know, it does rely on the Mono team to yeah, uh, update the Mono runtime for WebAssembly. And it does, uh, rely a lot on the Visual Studio team integrating their tooling to support it. Uh, the, the Razor compiler that, that is utilized inside of Visual Studio to make all the things light up and make sense in IntelliSense, um, is nothing short of amazing. That those teams working across boundaries to make that thing happen um it is just you know they've got some fantastic people to to make that as seamless as it is so uh while it would still exist i mean you may lose some of those things i am just being completely honest yeah, and yeah. no, that makes but sense. it would have that to be I w- and i
0: wasn't trying to like i wasn't trying to move the conversation but any particular way i just wanted to know if there was like any kind of assurances that people could have um but it sounds like if if microsoft did that then it would be um you know, theoretically, you could probably keep pieces of it going, but the experience might degrade over time. You know, you could still, those apps would still work just like they did. Um, But um, new functionality, it's really counting on, like you said, a coordination between IDE and frameworks and all that type of thing. So that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I think being flippant and saying, "Yeah, sure, they could," you know, open source community could just take it over. Yeah, uh, would be It's usually not that uh, easy. <laughs> it's not that easy. I th- I think it would be, you know, putting down all the hard work that those those people have put into yep. making this thing as amazing as it is. Okay, so do you
0: think that's something that we should be worried about, though? Like, um, do you think Microsoft is fully behind Blazer?
2: Uh, yeah, I I know they're fully behind Blazer. It is uh, being. Um, it, or it has been added to ASP.NET Core 3.0. So it is out of experimental and it is in preview mode right now. Uh, so it is committed to ship. Now, what's going to happen is in uh, the next release, it should go RTM. So the server side version of Blazor will go RTM. And then uh, in Q1, Q2 next year, uh, there's speculation that the client-side version will go RTM as well. So it will stay in preview as they, they tune it up a little bit. Um, it is, you know, breaking new ground, and it is, ex- um, I wanted to say experimental there, but it's not experimental. It's uh, it's it's a brand-new thing, and it's got some growing to do yet. Uh, it has uh, a little bit of performance uh, improvements that need to be made. Um and the file sizes are a tad on the large side. Uh, the amount of um, bits that you're shipping mm. uh, with Blazor a little little bit more than uh, some of the competitive JavaScript stuff that's out there. Yeah. Uh, but there there's ground being broken there. Um, that's why it's shipping later, and that's uh, they believe they can get it uh, to where it's competitive with Angular and React. And that's why they've taken it out of the experimental phase. So there's hope there. Uh, But to answer your question, you know, they are behind it and it doesn't look like it's going anywhere.
1: Okay. Yeah. I I think just staying on this topic for just a few more seconds. One of the things that really kind of shows Microsoft's commitment, if you do just a search for GitHub and Blazor, you get to the slash ASP.net slash Blazor page. And right on there, it says Blazor has moved to the ASP.net core repo. And when you follow that link, it's just
2: part of ASP.net core now. Mm-hmm. Mm. It is. So it's it,
1: not its own. It's not its own special separate thing anymore. That's good.
2: And the the issues are being tracked uh, the way they track them with the rest of the product. Uh, so you you can tell there's. Um, I don't know if this is the right terminology, but there's there's budget being you know put into this thing. Uh, just judging by the way the, the tags are set up on the repositories there, it, l- it looks like there's, there's cost being associated with activities that are going into it. So that's always a good sign. Yeah.
0: Um, and then what are, what are some common limitations that you've run into? Cause I know you've, you, you've worked with blazer a lot. Um, so what can yeah. we, what, what headaches can we expect when using it?
2: Yeah, I think I mentioned a few of them already. So mm-hmm. file size is a little large right now. It's, um, I think it's uh, 2.4 meg for Hello World, which is a <laughs> bit large for compliance. A little bigger than JavaScript. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually it is, but it isn't. Uh, Angular can get quite large quite well, quick right. as well. Um, on, on the, uh, the non, um, shipping side, like the non production side of it, Angular is gigantic. Holy cow. I think Hello World, uh, before it gets packaged up and minified is, uh, you know, hundreds of, thousands of files and several gigabytes of of stuff uh but what actually gets shipped over the wires uh you know generally uh, a meg or something like that um So, yeah, Angular can get quite large as well, but they've got a lot of uh, mature tooling on the JavaScript side that that gets it down, and that's what's being worked on right now. Uh, So on the JavaScript side, you have something called tree shaking that goes through your JavaScript code and looks for uh, execution paths that aren't being used and drops uh, some of the code out. Uh, We have a similar technology on the .NET side, uh, called the IL linker, which goes through your assembly and looks for unused code and, and shakes those out of your DLL files. Uh, so they're they're making headway on that. Um, the other thing is speed. So because you're running um, a runtime inside the browser, uh, you you do have another layer of abstraction to go through. So it's not running, uh, your code isn't running on barrel metal WebAssembly. Mm. And, um, I mentioned earlier they're they're working on some tooling to get that, uh, as an option. So you can compile some of your, your slower running libraries, things that are maybe crunching some heavy numbers. You can compile those directly to WebAssembly and, and just reference those that way. Uh, so there's, there's avenues to, to fix these problems and, pushing the release off um, the, the RTM of the client side is, is why they're uh, doing that, so they can work on these issues. Um, IL, IL Linker, too, for us uh, at Telerg has um, been a little bit of a thorn in our side, and it's it's something that they've got issues open on and are fixing, uh, but IL Linker can be a bit aggressive, and it can take away things that um, you do need by accident. <laughs> and, uh, when those things get shaken out, then you get, uh, method not found exceptions. Uh, so that's, you know, making better tooling around IOLinker is, is something they're working on too. Uh, so we can, uh, safeguard against, uh, the tree shaking, not being so aggressive that it takes out things we are using. Uh, you know, with, uh, with C sharp having things in the language, like expression trees and lazy evaluation and stuff that tree shaking get can get pretty complicated to figure out what exactly uh, can get taken out, what can't.
1: So you've been around this for a bit. Is there any public examples of uh, shipped Blazor apps that you'd uh, like to mention?
2: Yeah, there's actually a really great one out there. Uh, so it's try.net.net I think is the right <laughs> address for it. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a mouthful. But it's it's actually Microsoft's uh documentation. Oh, that so it's T R
0: Y D O T N E T dot N E T? Yeah.
2: Okay. I think, I think that's right. Oh no, that's not right. That's not right. That's not it? Okay. No. <laughs> uh, it's something something Oh like is that. it try we could Google Bing it and find out. But it's Oh, uh, it's
0: try? Oh my God! How do I even say this? Tri-
1: try dot 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 net. <laughs> yeah, it's try
0: <laughs> dot the word. <laughs> no, dot. it's try, try period dot period net. Yeah,
2: <laughs> just go to the show notes. <laughs> it is a nightmare for uh, podcasting. Uh, to the URL is, but uh, yeah, try the word dot and then net. The word net is um is a Microsoft website and it is. The documentation, uh, it runs. So docs.microsoft.com runs some of their samples through try.net. Uh, so you can actually try C sharp code like in the browser. And they used to compile that code and run it in, um, Azure and then give you the response back in the browser. Um, that wasn't the most cost effective approach because you're, you're compiling and running God knows what code somebody typed in the browser in Azure. Uh, so we could throw a couple infinite loops in there and, and calculate pi or whatever we want to do, and then that's going to get executed on on Azure somewhere. Um, they've actually changed that to a Blazor application. So now you write your code, it gets compiled uh, into a DLL, that DLL comes back down the wire and executes in the browser. So if you write some heinous code that's going to just... Bring your CPU to the ground. Uh, it's on you this time. <laughs> well,
0: and, it's and, not on. And they, they they baited me because they they have their example is Fibonacci. <laughs> so <laughs> that's just not fair. Exactly. That's just not fair. Um, I also found there's a GitHub page that has like a bazillion samples in here. It's called Awesome Blazer.
2: Yeah. Have you seen that? That's it's a, from. Uh, that's a it, community it was, repo. that yeah. Came out of the initial. Um, uh, blazer.net that uh, Daniel Roth had put together and somebody took all the community stuff and moved it to this nice community page.
0: Yeah, there's lots of really cool stuff in here. There's asteroids, <laughs> beer calculator. Um, uh,
2: a, another big one is uh, aka.ms blazerworkshop blazer I believe is the correct URL. And that is the blazing pizza uh, workshop. Uh, and this is something that was put together by the Blazor team. So Steve uh, Sanderson, Ryan Nowak, um, Daniel, some others have contributed uh, to this amazing workshop that takes you through building um, a Blazor application. Uh, the workshop itself focuses on the client side UI part of it, but it is a real full stack .NET application uh, from... Uh, I think it's got a grpc in it, and there's database access, uh, there's all sorts of things going on in there, service workers, and um, there's JavaScript interops, and I mean, it takes you through every bit of Blazor. Um, it's a really great example of what can be built, and it's a good-looking app, too. The guys uh, on the ASP.NET team, they styled it, uh, it looks fabulous, so it's got some great CSS examples in it, too. Um, so that's another big one, uh, but in production, uh, try, try.net is going to be the, the big proof of concept, like who, who's using it for what, uh, Microsoft actually dog fooded this thing and, and stuck it in one of their own products. Ah, very cool. Very cool.
0: And then, um, I, you mentioned earlier, and I've heard this before the server side blazer, my, my head's going to explode. Is there, is there an easy way to explain server side blazer?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, server-side Blazor is actually really cool because, um, the, the type of work that I did as a consultant before I joined, uh, Progress Telerik is, uh, would have found this very useful. So with client-side Blazor, what we do is, uh, we can host static files anywhere in our DLLs get shipped over the wire. WebAssembly is our, uh, using Mono runtime for WebAssembly to actually execute that code. Um, What's nice about Blazor is it is uh, it's not tied to that, that model. It can use other models to host the UI. So what we can do is use SignalR as a pipeline between uh, a Blazor application and the client. And there's a small JavaScript file that goes over the wire and it bootstraps up uh, that client-side application. And then Blazor talks to that little thin client app and does all the DOM updates that way. So this is actually a template that you get out of the box. You don't have to worry about all that implementation yourself. It's just file new project. And you get uh, a Blazor app that just runs as a .NET executable. So what's really cool about this is if you have an app that you need to produce very quickly... And you know that uh, you can run this application without a lot of bandwidth interruptions, because this is a SignalR connected app, so it's got to have some persistent connection back uh, to the host. Um, and if you're working in, say, manufacturing, where you have a lot of hardwired computers and personnel inside of a building, this fits perfect. Um, I know of, you know, people at workstations that need to access data. Um, I can build an app very quickly because I don't have to write, um, an end tier application. I can just have a very flat, uh, data access model that's right inside of my Blazor app. I can go right to entity framework with this thing. So I don't have to do HTTP requests. So I can, I can write my, my whole application right in Blazor. And Blazor handles all the UI updates over the signal R connection and that signal R connection shipping binary data back and forth. So it's a very small transfer of just a few bits and uh, it gets the job done.
0: That's really interesting. (laughs) That's kind of, that's kind of mind blowing. Yeah. Um, Anything else or any insight into the the roadmap, like anything down the road that you're looking forward to?
2: Um. I guess one of the biggest things is is that it's going to be RTM possibly next month. I believe that's what Ooh. the roadmap is. R, uh, RT, RTM is next month, and okay. then GA is the following month. So um, the, the more this gets uh, closer to being full release, I think the more developers will jump on it. Um, you know how enterprise is. They're always slow to adopt, but they're definitely not going to adopt something that's in preview. So once this comes out of preview, I think we'll see a lot more people jump on board. Um, the framework itself is, has gotten very robust. Uh, a lot of the features are there that people have been asking for. Um, I think some of the hot button issues are going to be around productivity next. Uh, so I was just reading on Twitter today, somebody was asking about like live reload and things like that. Uh, live reload is a little bit of a tougher nut to crack with compiled code than it is dynamic JavaScript yeah. code. Uh, so they're, they've got uh, their work cut out for them there. Uh, but I think those are, um, you know, less important features than having a full stack uh, dev tool that we can use to create web applications uh, with uh, .NET and C Sharp and tools we already you know know very well that uh, we don't have to switch contexts or learn uh, something outside of our ecosystem we're already productive with.
0: Yeah, I mean, I could see a lot of companies being excited about this because it unlocks an existing skill set that you might have. And uh, there's still lots of companies that are making, you know, desktop applications because they don't want to get into this crazy, fast moving world of, you know, the JavaScript flavor of the day. So they've just been happily writing their server-side .NET code. And now they can utilize that same thing to start writing these rich client apps. And this might be the turning point for a lot of companies to start doing that.
2: Yeah. And and one of the other things that I'm looking forward to is, uh, you know, Daniel Roth, he's a really smart guy. He's been asking a lot of really good questions lately around what templates we would like to see next with Blazor. And some of those templates may include uh, PWA out of the box, um, desktop application out of the box. So we might be able to say file new project and get a Blazor application that has an electron shell and runs on the desktop. So those those are that seems like a lot of like memory
0: and CPU footprint for something that could have been a .NET app, but it still (laughs) makes sense because like (laughs) developer productivity is far more important than 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 those resources in many cases.
2: Yeah. So one thing that um leads us to is a really cool example um i saw daniel roth or sorry uh steve sanderson do this in uh london a couple months ago and i i liked it so much i took the idea back to my twitch show that i have i do a live stream on on blazer uh uh, every week i have at least one show i'm up to three shows a week for the summer but uh anyhow he he did this demo that's really cool that Shows that you can take all of your application logic, components, page routes, all of those things, stash those in a um, in a .NET standard library, and then you can create multiple uh, hosting model projects. So you can say, I want to host it on uh, the client, I want to host it in um, Electron, I want to host it as a PWA. And those little shell apps have almost no code in them. It's just bootstrapping code for the environment that right. it's in, and then you just reference that .NET DLL that has all of the app logic and UI in it, and it just works.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. That's that's really cool. I mean, because you have to ship to multiple places. I'm just thinking of like uh, Microsoft Teams is like the best example. Like I was on a I was in a meeting earlier. And, uh, I had somebody who was like trying to chat with me and they're like, Oh, I hate that. I have to keep switching back and forth. I'm like, just go to teams.microsoft.com. So it's like that same thing is running, you know, I'm running an electron and then I'm running it on the web at the same time, you know, same code base. I don't know if they're using blazer, probably not, but, um, yeah, same concept.
2: What's nice is if we use blazer to write responsive UIs for our Blazor applications, and this—that's one of the big focuses at, at Telerik is always making our stuff responsive, so it runs on mobile. Even if your website gets you know opened up on a an iPhone, it yep. works and looks and acts like it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. You can build those apps that run you know desktop, web, mobile um, with Blazer, uh, make those PWAs and whatnot, and there's still nothing stopping you from writing a Xamarin. Uh, companion app for that, and putting that in the store in s- referencing some of the same .dot NET code from Blazor and Xamarin in the you know from a shared library. Yeah, because they're all .dot NET now.
0: Yeah, super cool. Okay, uh, Carl, looks like you have an app of the week.
2: Yeah,
1: uh, this one's pretty cool. Do you remember back like Windows ninety five and Windows XP? They had the Power Toys. Yes, and I used uh, apps? I used a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah, I remember like tweak UI where you could like really get in and like hit settings that weren't very obvious to hit otherwise and sync toy and the calculator that came with that. Yeah. Well, now there is a new. Uh, from the ground up, Power Toy for Windows 10. It's out on GitHub and they've only got a little bit out there now, but they've got quite the backlog of products that they want to build into Power Toys. So, this is something that's coming from Microsoft. The first two are um, this little UI that when you want to maximize something, when you hover over it, it'll actually pop up another button where you could maximize to another desktop. And if you don't have one, it'll create that virtual desktop as well. Oh, that's cool. Uh, another, another way, another one is to a way to visualize all the windows key shortcuts. So like when you do like windows key one, it'll open up the first app that's on your uh, taskbar, but there's like a million other like windows key period to do the emoji thing. This will show you what they all are. So those are the first two that are, are in there. Um, but there's like a dozen more that are on the backlog. Uh, and not to mention, they also put in the repo that the Power Toys team has gotten some interns and they mentioned what the interns are working on. Okay. So that's really cool as well. Well, they got the, so the GIF recorder in there as well. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if people are familiar with it, but at Microsoft, there's a, a week long hack fest where you get to work on just tons of cool projects. Uh, Power Toys internally is going to be one of those projects that Microsoft employees can work on. So there could be a huge bump coming up in the next couple of weeks uh, (laughs) to some of the output that comes out of uh, the Power Toys repo. Yeah,
0: that's super cool. What is the batch file renamer? Because I saw the process terminate tool. That's pretty cool. File classification spec. Well, anyway. It's Jason now. You can't hear me?
1: Oh, Yeah, I'm back. I'm back. You're, you're down a rabbit hole. I regain focus. Okay.
0: Hole. Okay. So let's move on here. And then you have a dev tip of the week, which is the open pinball database. What is that?
1: Yes. So there, there's two things that I really like, uh, just sources of data information that we can pull off. And I really love pinball machines. <laughs> so this is both, this is an open API about pinball machines. So you can query pretty much any feature of any pinball machine ever made and this is your api to get all that data out of it and i this is really cool because they even put in this api uh support for like the type ahead so like as you're typing it'll like stream responses back to you so that's all included in some of these search endpoints
0: that's pretty awesome the Open Pinball Database. That is really cool <laughs> with a focus you on can tell what
2: I was searching for a couple of weeks ago.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Okay.
2: Very cool. So, uh, Ed, where can people find you? Uh, since my name is probably hard to spell for most people, it's, uh, the best way to find me is to go to blazer that will redirect you to my website, edcharbonneau.com. And from that website, you can get to my YouTube channel my twitch stream my podcast uh where i have a lot of uh, blazer content like i was saying i do show a twitch show every week and then some on blazer and just blazer uh, so i've got a lot of backlog up there if you want to learn more um, and then i also uh work on the telerik ui for blazer for progress uh so if you go to telerik.com slash blazer ui uh, you can find those components there. Check those out. Give us feedback. You get a free 30-day free trial there. Uh, and we, we've got quite a bit of stuff there. So give it a look.
0: Awesome. I love the focus on Blazor. Is your license plate, uh, say, Blazer?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I do have some. Um, so Blazor didn't have an icon or branding of any kind for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So I've got a, quite a bit of my own stuff that I've invented. Uh, so people can support the framework with their own swag so i've got a um the it's not the nintendo power glove it is a pal r glove like you know like media oh, yeah, and yeah. signal yep. r so it's the POW R glove uh for uh, legal reasons and um <laughs> <laughs> and it has the word blazer across the fist and that's my
0: pick that up at your uh, local mcdowell's
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i've got some fun stuff like that out there
0: what about uh here's an idea for you a blazer blazer (laughs) you can I I do
2: have iron on patches and stickers and t-shirts and uh, mugs and all kinds of fun stuff though (laughs) yeah very cool and Carl where
1: can people find you you can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer
0: you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash white so Ed thank you for coming on here and telling us everything we needed to know about blazer
2: thank you guys I really appreciate you having me on